Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi, and welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. For those who have never heard the podcast before, I always have to clarify, I'm not actually a rabbi. I am ordained as a spiritual director or counselor. Uh, did a three-year program to do that, but never went to the rabbi thing because I just didn't think I'd be good with the, you got to show up for this, you got to do this, everybody's looking at you, why did you pick your nose? You know, I, I just figured it was not the path of of uh, least resistance to my spirituality. Um, I don't know how people are doing. I'm finding, you know, you can muscle through the first three months of a pandemic, but now we're into this second phase of coping and isolation. And more than anything, it's the invisibility of what we're trying to deal with. You can't touch, taste, smell the virus. You don't know where it is. You don't know if someone has it. People are asymptomatic. They walk around and they, they think they're fine. Some people are okay. Some people think they're okay and then aren't okay three months later. And other people, they just die. And I, he, I live in Hamilton, Ontario. And um, there was a Broadway actor, Nick Cordero, who's from Hamilton. And he's 41 years old, height of his career, Tony... Um, just loved by so many people and he gets this and that's right at the beginning in March and this goes on for months and eventually he gets a leg amputated uh, he's by the time he died they were seriously considering a double lung transplant to try to save his life and he died and he died anyway is the way some people see it right because at 41 you're not supposed to well in our culture, no one's ever supposed to die. And if you did, there was something you did wrong. There's no doubt about it. So we're, we're not great with dying to begin with, but we always think it's like the conversations we have around diseases that can kill you. You battle them. You're a hero. And I don't think probably in my mind that Nick Cordero was being heroic. I think he was being human and his journey ended. And I just find that now when we're more confused than ever about what we walk out to and what we walk into, we have to try to figure out what is our relationship to each other, to ourselves, to something bigger than us. Because when people talk about spirituality and religion, they're not the same thing. And I've spoken about this on the podcast before. Spirituality is your relationship. What's your relationship to yourself? What's your relationship to other people? Do you see something call it what you want, divine, a spark in every other person, that there's a humanity there that you can uncover. I was talking to a friend last night about the corrosiveness of, of Twitter and of uh, social media. And people say things that if they said them in front of someone, they'd get punched in the mouth. You're just not supposed to talk like that to people. But now everybody's talking like that. But more than that, it's that we're trying to convince each other. We're not listening to each other. So if I sit with somebody who has a diametrically opposed opinion to me, what's my option to convince him or to become curious about them? Because if you become curious about someone, you start to let them speak instead of waiting your turn to convince them they're wrong. And that's a big thing because mostly what we're doing in, in all of these platforms is trying to be heard trying to conquer our feeling of separateness. So maybe we can take that into ourselves when we're thinking of what we're going to say when we see something on social media or even what we say to each other 
in how we behave. Um, because we're all we've got, you know, the world around us, our own relationship. And for some of us, bigger questions about what am I here for and what the hell is going on? What is this universe? How did this... One look at a picture from the Hubble telescope, it's enough to make most people just go, what is going on? It's crazy. So just some thoughts about how we can behave within this because the the anger and the irritability and the fear are growing within the society at this point. We went through the first three months, now we're in the scary part. So I, I wish you only the ability to sustain yourself and to find ways to relate to each other that are um, sacred as opposed to profane. And maybe that'll help us get through this. I wanted to talk to the guests that I've asked to come on the show today uh, for a while. I've always uh, watched his work and, and for some reason I could just find myself going, I like this guy. I'd like to get to know this guy. He's, he's a good person. Uh, it always came through for me. Uh, there was a humanity that I could feel. It wasn't just a job. It was a person saying, I can connect with you. And then this all baseball season died. And in the middle of that, he decides that he's going to reach out to people, baseball fans, just to say hello, particularly the vulnerable and the older, and just to say hi. And I just thought, in, in Jewish terms, that's called being a mensch. A, and a mensch isn't just a nice person, it's a human being. It's the ultimate compliment in Judaism to say someone is a human being. That means that they're total. They're not always light and perfect, but they have a heart and they connect it to their body, to their heart, to their mind, to something greater. And I have the feeling this person has those things in play. So I want to say hello to him. Jamie Campbell, who you probably know, if you're in Canada, uh, from uh, sports and baseball, and he's covered the Olympics, he's done all kinds of things. He's had a wonderful career, um, and I'm happy that he's here. Jamie, how are you? Ralph, I'm happy to join you. It's nice to uh, meet you. We've never met. It's true, right? We still haven't. <laughs> well, we'll see by the end. You never know. It's quite possible I passed you in the halls of CBC years ago, but uh, and thought you wouldn't have remembered that. And I would, and you wouldn't. Neither of us would. Well, maybe we did. I. It might have caught my attention. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to start with why. Why do you do what you do? Why not this part about calling people? Why do you clip on a mic and talk to people? and reach out as a broadcaster. Why do I phone complete strangers? No, why no. do you why do you get on TV? Why, why do, do you, I get on TV? Yeah, why why do you decide that you want to communicate with people? Um years ago when I fell in love with baseball um and I was in my early teens I tried to imagine what my life was going to look like 30 or 40 years down the road. And at that time, my father was traveling around most of Ontario selling shoes. My mom was staying home and raising three kids. And I had this perception that when you finish high school, and if you're lucky enough to go on to university or college, that when it's all over, 
you walk out into this real world where you put on a suit and you go and you work in an office or you put on, uh, you know, jeans and a long sleeve shirt and, and, and go and stamp leather in a factory. Um, and that's the second stage of your life. That's the working stage of your life. Your fun is over. You're no longer a, a sort of young, innocent person full of spirit and free time. And now you have to go out and be responsible to the world and earn a living and make money and maybe even raise children and support uh, other people. And so when I was very young and had this undying passion for sports as a whole, but very specifically baseball, I tried to imagine that second stage of my life where going and earning that paycheck every day involved being at the stadium watching a baseball game. And at the time, it seemed like um, an unachievable dream. But in time, as I got a little older, I started seeing that other people, in fact, do this kind of thing, even though they're not talented enough to actually be playing Major League Baseball. They are involved in the game in some way, whether it's as a broadcaster or, um, you know, front office. I had many times witnessed certain um, sports broadcasters roaming Exhibition Stadium, for example. And I used to think, well, how do they get to where they are? And better yet, how do I do it too? And so this idea was born when I was 15 or 16 years old that I would dedicate all of this passion toward at some point, making sure that the career that I was going to have, the paycheck that I was going to earn eventually to raise a family, um, have a job like my father did, did not involve driving around Ontario selling shoes. It in fact involved wearing a suit and going to a baseball stadium and watching baseball games for nothing. So I crafted this idea. It's a, it's a very long story as to how I got there. And there was a lot of failure and a lot of rejection and uh, about with depression and all kinds of roadblocks. But thank goodness for those roadblocks. Really, what, what's the point of the journey if you're, if you're not stopped from time to time and told that maybe this isn't going to be achievable? So um, here I sit, age 53. And as I like to tell people, I have um, fooled everybody all this time. I have never worked a day in my life. And my hope is that when I get to the point of retiring, that I'll be able to turn and look at everybody and say, I got you all. <laughs> How do you see failure? I think failure is a good thing. Because if, if life was too easy, um, we probably wouldn't enjoy it quite as much. What good is uh, achieving something if you didn't have to really work for it? If at some point, whatever it was you achieved was almost taken away from you or was almost denied you because you didn't catch a lucky break or didn't work hard enough. Um, Failure is an aspect of this journey that we're on. I, I failed as a, um, as a husband, for example. I've been separated four years. My marriage lasted 13. For whatever reason, when I exchanged vows in uh, 2005, uh, I was unable to live up to them. I think I've done a really good job of being a father, but there are aspects of fatherhood where I failed too, and 
the best part of failing is learning. Um, and as you would well know in broadcasting, you fail every day and you do so in front of a live audience most of the time. And you can't take it back if it's a live audience. And you learn very quickly to accept your failures or you, you won't succeed. Um, so failure comes in all different forms, all different shapes, all different sizes. And frankly, I'm glad that we do because what good is it if you don't learn from every little pothole that you, uh, you drive over in this lifetime of ours? It sounds when you talk about your marriage that you've taken it upon yourself, that you blame yourself somehow. Am I right about that? Uh, I would blame both of us. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't hers. It was just right. two people that, uh, that decided after 13 years that they probably didn't have as much in common as they thought they did when they first met. Um, I'm sure there are many, 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 many people, some listening to this, who feel that too and recognize that you know, who you are when you're 30 isn't exactly who you are when you're 45. Yeah. Um, I think I had a really good indication from the beginning that uh, when this whole idea of raising a family was accomplished and the kids were off doing whatever they were going to do and um, off studying in university or college and forging careers of their own, that you know maybe this wasn't the person I was going to continue to walk forward with because what she had envisioned was entirely different from what I had envisioned. So I don't think that's really failure. I feel like it is in a way because it, be, it came to a legal finality, but um, you know, we gave it a shot. We have two great children. They're um, really respectable young kids, well-behaved, um, compassionate young children. And so we did that well. So it wasn't a total failure. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't ask from any point of judgment. I have a second a marriage, and I have two children from each marriage. Uh, but when I, I do workshops occasionally with people about getting older, about aging and saging, and one of the things you have to do is take inventory of who you are and who you've been. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions is, what do you regret? And for me, I always regret the pain I gave my children by getting divorced because they don't get a vote. They don't get to say, you know what, you're not allowed to get divorced. I don't care how unhappy you are. We're all staying in the house. And you, and you have to see that, that heartbreak in, in the kids that this has happened. And now they're one of the kids in school whose parents were divorced instead of one of the ones who wasn't. And so I, 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 hear, I hear that in you. I hear that, that idea that it's not about blame, but there is a sadness to the, to the death of a marriage and the death mm -hmm. of a family as you knew it. And I believe that it's a little more profound and hurtful when there's a real and true animosity between the man and the woman upon separation and ultimately divorce. That was not the case with me. In fact, mm. we're exceptionally good friends. We get along very, very well. The kids go back and forth from one house to the next freely. Um, there was very little hurt, very, very little hurt in the uh, decision to split and you know the interesting thing for me is i look back at why it happened um and as much as i was disappointed at the beginning of it i now realize that you know maybe 
that stage of my life was the child rearing um, family developing stage. And she was the perfect partner for that point in my life. And, you know, baseball is kind of predicated on hope. I mean, the hope that you can make contact with the baseball circle, the bases and come home eventually. And so my hope is that maybe second time around as perhaps you're experiencing is when you find real and true love. And, and when that, that one person that, that is always going to be, um, that was always sort of your destiny finally reveals themselves. And, um, like two peas in a pod, you go off and, and live out the rest of your life together. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that's what, what is in the future, but I mean, who knows? Life is pretty unpredictable. Yeah. In, in Judaism, the term is the besheret, the soulmate, the, the one that we're destined for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who knows whether any of these things come to pass in the way that we hope they will. But on the other hand, if, if you're loving in, in a divorce and your children see that, that's a blessing. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've blessed your children with a, a lack of acrimony. When I hear about people fighting over each other's heads, it breaks my heart because I just think the children are getting divorced over and over and over again at that point. So, uh, you know, God love you for doing that the right way. Um, you spoke about uh, depression. It has I don't know from that world. I, I know I've been depressed at times in my life about my situations, but I, I've never actually felt the dark hand on my shoulder. Is that a lifelong battle or battle is the wrong word? Is that, is that a companion in your life? It not for me, it's not Um, mostly because I have not had to seek medication for um, my bouts. Um, One was a very specific period around 1992 when um, I thought I was finding failure at every turn and I secluded myself, isolated myself from my family and friends and wouldn't come out of my room for months and months. Um, it's in my family. So uh, it understandably is something that we're all very aware of. My mother um, suffered from depression about 10 years ago and it was drastic and it was very real and, and um there was a point where we had just had our firstborn. He was probably not two years old. And I took him to visit her in, uh, in Oakville, Ontario. And remember, remember vividly walking into um, their then three level home and seeing her on the main floor, just sitting cross-legged uh, in the, on the living room floor, sort of just um, shifting back and forth and staring at the rug and picking at particles on the rug and, Um, that's how low it had gotten for her. And, you know, this little bundle of joy that I brought with me did nothing to change her mood. Absolutely nothing. In fact, I remember thinking, I'm not even so sure she's aware that her grandson is here. Right. And that's how bad it can get for people. Um, Mine has been at stages in my life when I figured I'd met roadblocks that I couldn't overcome. And my reaction to it was to shut everything down, shut everybody out and not seek help in any way. That must be a place to get to. Uh, Do you find any comfort in there or is it, 
to just isolate yourself? No, there's no comfort. And you know what? Oh. I, I, I try to describe it and people who've been through it will understand this. It, it feels like there's a dark, dark cloud that's around you yeah. that, that you'll, you'll swat at and fight endlessly and it will never, never go away and you'll never see the sunshine again. Wow. And, it, and it feels very much like um, there is no hope that regardless of how things change, regardless of how many good things might happen to you on a daily basis, no matter how good your health might be, um, how close your friends might be, um, how well you might be doing in your career, mm. there's still not going to be that satisfactory sunshine that's going to settle on you every single morning. You're going to wake up, that cloud's going to be there, and you will not be able to get rid of it. it it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful, awful feeling. And I feel obviously awful for anybody that has to endure it. Yeah, that's a beautiful description. I, I wonder when it's over and when you're back with us, does it give you any kind of a gift? Does it make you more compassionate? Mm -hmm. does, does it do good things for you? Absolutely it does. In fact, when I went through it, and I believe the year was late 1998 going into 1999 and through parts of 1999, um, I had left a local TV station in Ottawa, had been recruited to start this brand new sports network called Sportsnet, was working insane hours, as you would understand, mostly weekends, no social life, uh, living in an apartment in Toronto, never seeing the friends that I had grown up with in the greater Toronto area, because in many respects they'd gone to university and gone off and had families and settled in other places. And I wasn't close to having a family. I had no social life whatsoever. And I remember um, the day that I took my first steps to erasing this cloud. Um, I woke up one day and I looked in the mirror and I, and I counted up all of those things I just mentioned that, well, I do have my health, my family's healthy, got a really good job, I'm young, reasonably good looking, reasonably well-educated. I've got all of these things, so why do I feel so bad? And I looked in the mirror and I said, you have got to do something about this. Step out of your comfort zone right now, figure it out and go and do something for somebody else. Mm. Because to that point, everything had been about me. It had been about my career and establishing a reputation in that business, um, working on my resume, getting my demo tape together, whatever it might've been, it had always been this focus on bettering myself. And I'd never taken a second to try and impact somebody else's life. So I randomly picked up the phone called um, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, connected with a woman named Judy, and I forget her last name, who had the library at the Hospital for Sick Children. And once a week, you could go in, celebrities, quote unquote, were invited to go in, anybody, in fact, and read to the children who were, um, were staying at the hospital and were being treated at the hospital. So I booked myself in to go and read uh, at the Storytime Library at the Hospital for Sick Children. And I remember walking out of there the first time I did it thinking, you finally, finally decided 
that you're ready to impact other people's lives instead of just your own. And that was the first step to getting out of depression. Wow. That is, that is so interesting to me because that pivot can happen or never happen. Yes. Right. You can, you can ride right by that horse and just go, didn't see it, not going to do it. But you decided that there was not so much a taking, but a striving. You were striving to create the world and the life you at 15 had said, this is the one I want. Yes. And then here you were realizing enough about me. What do you think of me is not going <laughs> to really cut it mm -hmm. in life mm -hmm. that you had to find a way to give. Um, and giving and compassion are, are mental health tools that a lot of us don't really, really know how to use. And, and, and you did it. How did you feel when you went to the, to the hospital and read to those kids the first time? I was nervous when I walked in. Yeah, I bet. You know, it's it's never easy speaking to um, children in masses as it is. But having to sit on a stool and stare back at kids who might be yeah. dealing with cancer or brain tumors or leukemia yeah. is even harder because how you behave is something you think about. If I were to walk into a gymnasium full of third graders, some of them would be paying attention. Most of them wouldn't but I'd go up and do what I've been asked to do regardless. But this is a far more intimate setting with maybe four or five children and they're paying attention to me while they're dealing with, you know, some intravenous that's running up their arm. And, and the key for me was don't break down yeah. and, um, and not be able to get through the responsibility that you've been, um, you've been asked to uh, observe. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, and oddly enough, I must admit this too. Every time I would go, I used to think I was currying a favor with God so that I wouldn't be one of those parents one day who was bringing their very sick child into the reading room every week to have a book read to them by me. And I remember yeah. even thinking about that the first time I had to admit my, uh, my now 14-year-old son to the hospital. And I thought, hmm, I remember very vividly um, taking action in this place so that maybe I wouldn't have to be here as a parent. But uh, And was the 14-year-old there for chronic condition? No, he, <clears throat> I um, very accidentally, when he was very young, fractured the back of his skull in a stroller incident. He never lets me forget about it. <laughs> so, we dealt That's, with concussions very early in this. Yeah, how, about, how am I going to explain this to my wife? Uh, yes. Uh, Honey, yeah. I dropped the kid. Yeah. Oh, and not only did I drop the kid, I dropped the stroller the kid was in. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. No. Well, so much for putting an investment into not having to take him there. Yes, yes. You're the one who actually made him go there. Yeah. How weird and interesting. So, you know, while you're talking, I'm thinking you have spent much of your life around a highly testosterone-driven, male-centered, sporting culture right? Where mm -hmm. when you strike out, you just stare off as if you meant it. You walk into the dugout and then the next guy comes up and then you sort of pull your jock strap right and get some seeds and spit for the next 15 minutes until you're back on the field. But no one's supposed to know that you're really pissed off. This did not work out. Or Jesus, did I look stupid just now? Mm -hmm. So everybody gets to bury their stuff 
And there you are in the middle of all that stuff with a beating heart. How do you, is it, do you find a way to connect to those, those athletes in, in a way that says, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I know you're human. It's okay. I do only because I understand how difficult professional sports is to excel at and not from personal experience. I was never much of an athlete myself. Um, but to be able to get to a level of say major league baseball or Olympic caliber athlete or NHL player, you have to be not only talented and exceptional at what you do, um, but you have to be able to handle failure and in baseball specifically, where what's the old saying that if you, um, if you get out uh, seven out of every 10 times, you'll end up in the hall of fame, right? Um, Because baseball is, is built on failure. Um, yeah. swinging, swinging a bat and trying to hit a, a baseball that's coming at you at 95 miles, miles an hour and, and higher is, is an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, so I, I certainly appreciate um, the constant failure that I witness every single day. I apply it in many respects to what I'm doing because it might be to you that late August broadcast, the Blue Jays are in Baltimore and they're 25 games out of first place. And you might think that I've shown up yet again to do the 135th broadcast of the season. But to me, every single one of those broadcasts is like my major league debut. I treat them as such because if you go back to the story of me as a 13 and 14 year old kid who was fostering this idea of doing this for a living, I never ever take any of them for granted. I remember the great Joe DiMaggio was once asked why in some meaningless late season game against Cleveland, he goes all out on a fly ball into the outfield um, or tries to stretch a double into a triple. And he said, because there might be somebody up in the stands watching me for the first time. And so I've always kind of attached that theory to every single broadcast I ever do, even 33 years after entering the industry. And, and that's my way of correlating performance with what I'm witnessing every day on the field from professional athletes. You know, I, I really uh, enjoyed you as a play-by-play guy. I thought, I thought you did a great job. I really did. And then I remember that Buck showed up and you weren't the play-by-play guy anymore. Mm -hmm. And I could feel how much you loved being a play-by-play guy. And I just thought, because I've had setbacks in my career, lots of people have. And I thought that must've been like a bit of a punch in the gut. We're, you know, we're bringing in Buck. Was that hard? It must've been hard. Exceedingly hard. Yes. And I, and I felt it coming the final year that I did play-by-play, which was the 2009 season, I had this sense that it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and this is only a personal sense. It, it didn't come from somebody whispering something into my ear at Sportsnet. And that year, um, I did something every time we'd go on the road that I'd never done before. And I walked the streets of every city that we stopped in at. So... I covered all of downtown Chicago and Detroit and New York 
and Oakland, well, San Francisco, to be perfectly honest, because they don't yeah. stay in Oakland, <laughs> Seattle, every Minneapolis. So oh, I would walk yeah. all the streets. And my thinking was, I may not be back here again. Wow. So, and I just had this sense that it was going to happen. Um, it's interesting how these different aspects of your life come at the perfect time. But the day I was brought into the office in December of 2009 and told that, uh, that Buck Martinez was taking over. And you have to remember, Buck was playing professional baseball the year I was born. So right. at the moment I was told who was replacing me, I wasn't completely broken up because he'd been in professional baseball so long and was so well liked by so many people. But about 15 minutes after I walked out of uh, the office, had after having been told this in near tears, I got a call from my nanny telling me that my youngest son, not the one whose skull I had fractured years earlier, my youngest son had had a seizure and was in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And he was fine eventually. The timing of it could not have been more perfect because what it did is it made me erect. It, 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 made, it stood me up straight and made me realize, oh, now wait a second. You have a greater purpose here than just doing play-by-play for the Toronto Blue Jays. You have a son that you have to go see immediately and be at his bedside. Um, and I got there so quickly. I was actually there in time to climb into the ambulance with him. Um, and he was fine. And he's still fine. Um, but I, I don't wish any child to have a seizure. Um, but that seizure came at the perfect time for me because it, it, it took me from this bent over and sad person who had just lost the job of a lifetime to, and none of that matters. What matters is, is that little boy that's being, um, loaded into an ambulance right now. And to be honest with you, Ralph, I never, never worried about it. Never worried about it after that. Not, wow. I, I never spent any time um, belaboring the loss of that position. Uh, I was too busy getting ready for the Vancouver Olympics that were coming two or three months afterward, which was a major Canadian success story. And I was there for a lot of it. And then I was too busy trying to formulate a brand new pregame show around Blue Jays baseball after they brought Buck on. So I never had time to be too concerned with not being in the play-by-play booth anymore. But, uh, but it was my son's seizure, literally yeah. 15 minutes after I walked out of that office, that, that made me stand up and say, okay, let's not forget why you're really here. Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting because you were at the point where you could be dropping to one knee and then you get this call mm-hmm. and you go, I've got to get up. And it's palpable for me, the love you have for your children. So for you, that must have been get there now. This is just this thing. Mm-hmm. And off you went. It's talk about uh, the things we don't can't possibly explain or plan in life. That certainly would have been from you, you you don't have this job anymore uh and part of you was going i knew it damn it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. shit and then bring your kid anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> back to the stuff that, right. that i care back about. to real life yes yeah yeah that's just an incredible thing 
You know, I, I think about uh, uh, Greg Zahn uh, a lot because I could feel you guys were really friends. It wasn't just, oh, this is the guy they've given me as a co-host. And then, you know, for whatever he did or didn't, you know, he walked himself into this thing where they just said, you can't be here or you got to go. And I wonder, because I know that he had struggled with alcohol when he was a, a player mm -hmm. and he had to go home to Texas and his dad had to sort of take care of him and get him back on his feet. And then he went back into baseball, played for the Jays. And, you know, I could really feel for the guy throughout his life. And we're all wounded warriors. We're all wounded heroes, you know. It's the wounded who, who, who have something to share with other people, right? So when I saw a tweet of his a little while ago, uh, about missing baseball. And I, it, I just thought you must still be able to, in some way, hold him as a friend. How, it, how is that with you guys? It's, it's once weekly. Um, he'll always be one of my best friends. In fact, um, the man who ultimately fired him, uh, Scott Moore, who was the then president of uh, Sportsnet, on the day of Greg's dismissal told me, I don't want you to stop being his friend. He'll need you more than ever now. And I said to Scott, I'm not intending to not be Greg's friend anymore. There's a reason we forged our friendship years ago. Anyway, you don't just, uh, you don't just sever a friendship because somebody's encountered a, a bit of a rocky period in their life. Um, yeah, Greg and I had, um, a wonderful relationship on many levels because I knew and I told him when he first started out as an analyst, I said, the only way you're going to succeed here is if you never refrain from telling people exactly how you feel about what you're seeing on the baseball field. You know, don't take personal shots at people unless it's warranted. If their performance is low and there are reasons for it, say it. Um, and you know, you're backed up by 16 years in the major leagues in a world series ring. You've got the resume. You can say what you feel about how other people are playing the game. And that's what people want to hear. They, they don't want somebody that's up there sugarcoating what they're seeing with their own eyes. Um, and so I had a lot of respect for Greg for being able to do that. Um, and to know Greg on a personal level and those who do will know that he is very highly opinionated. So you know, the, the battle with alcoholism that, that you mentioned is, is right in line with his personality. When he decides to do something, he does it with absolute fire. Right. And he dives headfirst and gives it absolutely everything. Where, where some people enter things cautiously just to make sure that it's the right choice, Greg goes in immediately. And then if he figures out it's, it's not the right thing to do, he'll back out or, or you know, or climb his way out some way. It's part of his personality. Um, so <laughs> you miss him. You got to miss him, right? Yeah, I miss. Um, well, I miss a lot of people. We're in the middle of a pandemic here. <laughs> um, I don't think I've seen him in in. I haven't seen him since New Year's. In fact, like right. physically seen him. Right. Um, yeah, I miss. I miss. Uh, the friendship that we had established. I missed uh, sitting around having a cocktail after certain broadcasts or certain games and, and occasionally going on the road with him. Um, but we can still do that kind of thing. 
And is he okay? Is he okay? Because he, he, something's been taken from him. Yeah, you know, it, there has been something taken from him. He is okay, but he is finding many, many barriers right now professionally. Right. Based on um, assumptions right. about who he is. And I think one of the things that I had real trouble with in the uh, days that followed his dismissal was that people were sort of lining him up with, um, and you'll have to, excuse me, I forget the name of the Hollywood producer that was recently imprisoned. Oh, uh, uh, Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Greg was being associated with people who had done awful, awful, awful things. Right. And Greg hadn't done awful, awful, awful things, if that makes sense. Yeah, it it, it was a... It was an insensitivity and an aggression and an inappropriate behavior. Yes, but it, but it wasn't predatory uh, sexual no. assaults. No, it wasn't. Right. It was inappropriate um, from a corporate perspective, sure. Um, but at no time did he um, assault. Yeah, he didn't attack physically people. harm or even really emotionally harm anybody. Um, well, it's, it's just a that sad the thing. It's just that the behavior wasn't going to be tolerated. Um, and, and so they dismissed yeah. him and, and I just yeah. felt bad that people, people just automatically assumed that what he was doing was similar to what, um, yeah. people like Weinstein or, um, Epstein, you know, some other people at that time were doing people. Yeah. 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 I always wanted to, I always, you know, felt like, uh, any of us that, you know, somebody said to me once after I'd had a setback professionally and they were just like, you okay. And they said, look nobody forced me to go looking for a spotlight. I went looking for it. And with it comes a territory that sometimes is a little bit like a, a bucking Bronco. It's hard mm -hmm. to stay on. And you got to just accept that if you're, if, if you're there when everybody says you're great at what you do, you're going to have to be there when they say you're useless at what you do and they hate you on the air and they hate this and that and just take it and go anyway. You know, I do this to conquer, I, I, I communicate with people to conquer this feeling of separateness that we have, to let people know that we're together. Which brings me to the last part, uh, which is your decision to reach out to people personally and talk to them, which any clergy would tell you is core to their business, is that you actually are the, the one person who, when no one else will actually do more than go, I wonder how Jim's doing. I think he's okay. There's the job of clergy is to phone Jim and say, Hey, how you doing? So I see what you, what you, what you've been doing and what you've done by reaching out to people is having um, a, a priestly bit to it. There's no doubt about it. Um, tell me about what, what you are harvesting from this experience of reaching out and phoning people and checking in on them in, in the pandemic. I am uh, I'm a richer person for the conversations I've had. Um, I'm very aware that, you know, you can turn on the news every single day and learn about all the things that um, ail this world we live in, whether it's poverty or racism or hunger or abuse on different levels. But the one thing that we don't talk a lot about is, is, omnipresent and that's loneliness there are so many 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 lonely people out there 
And I feel um, grateful that I have two children, um, lots of friends. Uh, my mother's still around, brother and sister. Um, I'm not a lonely person, but there are people that don't have anybody. Some of them are seniors um, who have lost um, their close friends. You know, it's, it's a common refrain from the people I talk to who are older, who, who find out that their friends in a word die off and, and they're not there so much anymore. And if they have grandkids or even children of their own, sometimes those kids have, have left the nest and gone to different parts of the country or the world. And, you know, they're not as in touch as they used to be. And so they sit at home in their senior years and, um, miss baseball in many respects, because baseball is that one thing when it's underway that you can rely upon every single day, right? Yeah. If the Blue Jays lose on Wednesday, guess what? They get back at it on Thursday night in Baltimore, or they'll be in Texas by Friday. And you know that you can turn on the TV and there's the ball game. Uh, it's the great thing about that sport. And I knew that the absence of baseball at a, the time of a pandemic would create this void for a lot of people. So that's why I decided to reach out and call people. What I later discovered is, wow, what a privilege for me, who's the guy on their television every night, and only by that reason do they allow me into their world and open up to me. I've learned so much about people across this country. I've gone and visited people that I've found, in fact, mm. um, about things that they went through when they were younger, baseball experiences they had long before I was born, wars they fought in. Um, in one case, a depression they survived in 1930. Um, I joked with a woman the other day who, um, who had just celebrated her 102nd birthday. And I kind of kidded with her and said, so you were around for the last pandemic then? <laughs> um, and, and also, of course, I mixed in a baseball reference. And I said, so you were born three months before Babe Ruth won a World Series with the Boston Red Sox. And she says, well, I guess I was. And so that's the enrichment I take from all of these phone calls is that um, I'm not some telemarketer who's going to get hung up on immediately. Ooh. I'm Jamie Campbell, the host of the baseball broadcast you're watching. Of course, I will answer the phone. And of course, I will tell you all about my family history or my relationship with my kids or why I love baseball or the cancer treatment I'm going through right now. And that's an absolute privilege. Um, so as much as there are some people are saying, Jamie, you're doing such a good thing by calling these people. What they don't realize is that they on the other end of the line are doing a great thing for me just by picking up the phone and talking. It must spiritually, that's a lot of nourishment. Mm -hmm. You know, that privilege is in the sharing and that loneliness really worries me. Because there's actually in the United Kingdom, in their Ministry of Health, they have a, a ministry, sub-ministry in that department that is actually the Ministry of Loneliness. Because they've realized that mental health-wise, this is taking a huge toll on people, particularly older people, because we've commodified older people. They're, they're not as useful to us as other people. They're not going to buy five more cars. They might buy one. They might just keep the one they have. Uh, and we're not all Zoomers, you know, we're not all going to go hang gliding at 83. Um, getting old isn't for sissies. It's tough stuff. 
And a lot of these people, I'm sure some of them were just like, hi, I'm Jamie Campbell. It's like, oh, come on, get off the phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to kind of pick your way through that. No, no, really. I've had a few of those. <laughs> well, you know, you can't blame them. Like, you no. know, if, if you're on TV, you're not a real person. Like you're, you're a two-dimensional character. When I used to do TV, um, people would just literally think nothing as they walked by me at, uh, pointing at me. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes they walk up and go, you are, wait a minute, don't tell me. And they go, oh my God, I'm in a quiz show and I'm the answer. This mm-hmm. is awful. I can't be out of here. But you've taken something and made it very special. I mean, I'd imagine there's parts of it that are heartbreaking too. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, I met by phone a family in Brantford, Ontario, I'd say, Two months ago, um, the um, the father Brett was given, I guess, four to six months to live. Um, advanced pancreatic cancer. Mm. The son was quite an exceptional baseball player, um, and he's now about twenty years of age, I think, maybe a little older. He'd been recruited by U.S. colleges, and uh, a family friend had reached out to me on their behalf. And I was uh, delivering some personal protective equipment in the area and reached out to them by phone and asked if I could come by and wave to, uh, to Brett, the father. Uh, unfortunately on the day that I did come by, um, he hadn't been released from the hospital yet. So they hadn't moved him into the house to the front window where he was going to um, live out the rest of his days. Several weeks later, I had yet another delivery of PPE in that area, so I called again, and this time, got a chance to meet him, uh, was invited into the backyard where they had this socially distant gathering of friends, and they were all drinking beer, and and Brett was there, and then just last week, I learned that he finally succumbed to the illness, Mm. Um, and so here's an instance where, if not for this pandemic, I'd be sitting doing Blue Jays baseball from my set every single day, um, talking to an audience about how the baseball team's doing. But instead, I'm now emotionally involved with a family that's just lost um, their father. And it's, it's, it's draining and it's hard. And I have no history with these people other than this immediate history of about two months. And now I feel and I feel great sorrow. And I wasn't expecting to have to feel such sorrow um, at this point uh, in 2020, unless it was directly attributed to somebody in my own family, which is oddly enough, I'm going through with a godmother who is, uh, is to use a racing terminology, about to see the checkered flag. She's in the final days of her life as well. So on a personal level and a non-personal level uh, I'm dealing with. And, and, you know, to go back to this discussion of loneliness, this is what the pandemic has done is that people are dying alone. People are suffering alone. And um, in my aunt's case, she has had visitors. Doesn't really like having visitors because the only way you can visit with somebody is to do it outside. And it's 150 degrees. Um, which is not good for somebody with lung cancer. Um, So she will die alone. 
And normally, under normal circumstances, there would be somebody at her bedside um, when that moment came, hopefully. But it's not going to happen during a pandemic. And this is, this is why, you know, being able to pick up a phone and call people is, is actually a, a wonderful tool um, because it's a very immediate and direct connection. You have chosen to feel your life. I can really see that. You, you've really chosen to say, I'm not here as a spectator. This is not a rehearsal. You, you know, Ralph, my, um, so my aunt, who's, who's dying, um, we all are, but she's close, just yesterday said to me, she's 77, she said, you know, my years from, from age 50 to 65 were really good good health, good income, lots of travel. She said, you're just embarking on those years. She said, please remember, don't waste them. And I'm sure you've heard that. I'm sure anybody listening to this has heard that. I'd heard it hundreds of times. Don't waste your time. Don't, if there's something you want to do in this lifetime, if there's something you want to see, somebody you want to be with, time you want to share with somebody, do it. Don't be afraid. Mm. But to hear that, I've heard it from all kinds of people. I've read it. I've seen it on television. But to actually hear it from somebody who knows that their life is now reduced to ours was profound. Yeah. And I promised her that when we finally get released from this pandemic and we're able to go back out into that world and live again, um, that I'm going to really live. I already do. Yeah, you do. But I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push the, uh, push the envelope a little bit on it. I do. In, one of, in, in the workshops I do, one of the things I ask the people who are in the workshop to do is to write a thing we call an, Oh my God letter. So uh, I learned it from a ra- one of my teaching rabbis. Who s- she said, uh, I've got four kids. I've written them all an oh my God letter. So that if somebody walks into a room and goes, I'm really sorry to tell you, but your mom just died. And they all go, oh my God, that they know they can go to this filing cabinet and take out this letter that she says, I want to make sure that I say what I'm going to say to them in this letter mm-hmm. so that it doesn't just, what do you mean it's over? And she said, once you write them, you start talking to them that way. You, you don't leave stuff out anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, your kid's about to walk out the door and you go, I love you. Yeah, I love you too. No, I love you. Yeah. Look at me in the eyes. <laughs> I'm right here. Yeah. Well, think about, think about how afraid people are of actually saying that. Oh, yeah. And I don't know why. I've never quite understood why people who love one another can't look at each other and say it. And. Here's something. My, my wife uh, was uh, conducting a funeral uh, a while back for a, a friend's mother. And she had this beautiful quote, she said, which is, the price of love is grief. That if you care enough about people, you're going to have to hurt when it's over. Mm-hmm. Right? Even in our own death, we have to think how... I, I don't know if I'll be able to not feel like I've let my children down by dying. I'm so sorry. I, I, I really planned on staying here till you didn't even care if I was alive anymore. You know? mm. So grief is what we pay for. You know, you do it when you have a pet. It sounds trivial, but you, mm-hmm. you can see their lifespan in front of you. And everyone in the house is looking at that pet thinking, 
how am I going to feel when it, when that cat or that dog dies or that budgie or whatever it is? But that's our practice for the, of our human relationships. Mm -hmm. And loving is, is, is something that takes guts. It really takes some guts to, to actually love someone and to tell them that you love them because now you know you're going to really hurt when they die. Mm -hmm. So that might be part of it. Mm -hmm. But you'll hurt even more if you fail to express yourself to them and maximize your time with them while they're alive. Which is what you're teaching by doing the things you're doing and the way you're living your life because you are a public person. And we can decide, you know, I used to do a broadcast skills workshop at CBC and they'd say, I'd say, so here's the bad news. It's not healthy to want to stand in front of people all the time and tell them your name and hope that they love you and you've never even met them. That's kind of weird. Uh, now, the good news is you actually have the tools to convince people of that, that they should love you and that they should watch you or listen to you. The question is, now that I have your attention, what is it I want to say? How do I inform the things I want to say? How do, how do I make more of life than just that rookie just hit a home run at their first at bat in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. And it's by living a life that you're able to say that you can imagine what he and his family are going through by watching that ball sail out of that park, that everything they've done up until that moment in, in life, every dream he had in the sandlot in the Dominican Republic, it's real. It's mm -hmm. over the wall. See you later. I'm out of here. Right. Mm -hmm. And that it, knowing that you can feel allows you to be able to, even in those moments, talk about love. Right. You know, I love the, the images when the, when the parents are there for the first game of the, oh, of yeah. the kid, you know, it just, you just know that inside the father just wants to run around up and down the aisles, throwing beer at people and freaking yes. out, yeah. <laughs> even That's though they're sitting there trying to be cool. Right. Yeah. That's the great thing about sports. And I, and I pointed this out on social media recently. I said the, the saddest part about this, this upcoming baseball season is that yeah. there will be, and we know this, that there will be some players who, who appear in the major leagues for the very first time and after this year will never return to the major leagues and their entire careers will be played in front of nobody. Yeah, yeah. No, no parents during the debut, no celebratory um, hugs from the players after they've got their first hit. No, nobody watching in the stands. Yeah. It's, it's kind of also sad. bizarre because it, it, it is a sports can be church for some people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, baseball is my, my, my sports church. It's the one that I, I, I worship at. So I know why I love everything about the game. Spiritually, if you looked at baseball, what would you say it is that attracts you to that sport more than the others? I'd have to answer that two ways. Um, one is that it's, um, it's such a loving presentation. It's played on green grass under mostly sunshine you know, unless it's early April and raining and cold and you want to close the roof on the stadium. But you know what I mean? Sure. Baseball was designed to be played on, on green grass with, um, you know, birds chirping in the background and uh, 
spectators who are there not necessarily having to pay attention to all nine innings or every pitch. They can come in and come out of the game at will. They can have a great conversation in the fourth inning and pay rapt attention to the fifth inning if they choose. And then when the game's tie going into the bottom of the ninth, that's when your attention really focuses. And that's the great gift of baseball. It's based almost entirely on hope. Uh, the hope that even if the Baltimore Orioles or the Detroit Tigers are the absolutely positively worst team in the major leagues, there is hope on opening day that that might change. And if it doesn't change this year, it might change a year from now or even 10 years from now as you know, teams like the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs realize with their decorated histories that went decades and decades without championships. And finally, um, and this kind of relates to our topic of loneliness is that baseball is not like football that you have to wait for once a week. It's not like hockey where they might not play for another three days or basketball or a golf tournament or a major auto race. It's played every single day. And the only reason they have days off is so that these players can get a break every now and then. And so can the broadcasters for that matter. But every day, unless it's raining, that ball game will be on your television. And um, if you can make it on Wednesday, great. But if not, we'll be there Thursday too. And we'll see you Friday night as well. And we can be, I shouldn't say that, baseball can be relied upon like a family member in many respects or a really good friend. Uh, and that's why I love the game. You know, I was talking to the uh, producing musical legend Quincy Jones years ago. And he compared the sports to the cultures that they are from. And he said, baseball is uh, acoustic. It is wood and leather mm -hmm. and grass. And it's pastoral. And football is war mm -hmm. and machine-like and militaristic and the conquering of land and uh, soldiers marching up a field. He said, uh, he didn't talk about hockey, and he said, but basketball's hip-hop. It just bings and bangs and booms and bings and bangs and booms, and then it's in. And I realized that one of the things I loved about baseball was exactly that pastoral piece, that this is grounded on the planet. This is people having to do something incredibly hard to do that looks incredibly easy to do. Like, what's your problem? Why didn't you, what, you just watch that pitch go by? And yet there are so many beautiful machinations that go on within the game and so many personalities that their character really gets revealed almost in slow motion in front of everyone. Mm. You know, you, in football, you can be behind a helmet. Nobody will ever know who you are. Mm -hmm. And in hockey, you can bang or overgrown men banging around a much too small arena. But in baseball, it's fields. You're literally walking around a field and I just love that part of it because as you said, it has two different elements of time. It has eternity. The nine innings can, or could be 19 innings. Who knows what'll happen, but it's also every day, every day I get to start again. It doesn't really matter. You can lose 17, you can hit, have 17 runs and the next game is like, you know, three hits in the entire game and love them mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. So it's a wonderful thing. Listen, I want to thank you for everything, for sharing everything with me. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a pleasure to get to finally meet you, even though it's virtually. 
Uh, and uh, I, I want to wish you nothing but love and happiness in your life and your family uh, and your children. Um, I think they've got a great dad. And if they see the things you're doing now, they're going to be good, good kids. And uh, thank you for, for doing the things you're doing with all those people in Canada who you, who you share with, not just on the TV, but when you pick up a phone and just break right through that loneliness of theirs, that by doing it, you're telling them they matter. And that's a lovely thing. So. Thank you, Ralph. I, uh, I appreciate it. And I've enjoyed this conversation. You take care, okay? I will. You too. Okay, thanks. Jamie Campbell, uh, you probably know him best if you love baseball because uh, he is uh, the face of the pregame show for the Blue Jays and is on throughout the broadcast. Uh, and he's with Joe Siddle these days uh, doing that. And uh, Jamie's doing wonderful things with his life and with the, uh, the gifts that he's been given. He has uh, turned them from inward to outward. And, you know, really there's nothing better than that kind of a compassionate and caring life. So I really appreciate him doing this with me. I'm Ralph Benmergi. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi. If you uh, are interested in what we do, please subscribe. Go to our Not That Kind of Rabbi Facebook page. And you can uh, get in touch with me uh, at my Gmail at ralphbenmergi at gmail.com. Or you can go on Twitter at Ralph Ben Murgy and say hello. And uh, uh, and if, by the way, you're a sponsor, please step to the front of the line. Help me to get this show on the air every week. Mike and I work hard to give it to you, but uh, we hope that uh, once in a while somebody will go, you know what? This is a good thing. Let's do it together. Take care, and we'll see you next week. I'm not that kind of rabbi.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.